Hello, and welcome to the Teens for Peace podcast. We're excited you've joined us, whether you're a new or returning listener. Before we get into the content, allow me to introduce myself and a little bit about what I'm setting out to do. My name is Max Hyman. I'm 18, 17 when I started this podcast, and 15 when I started this project, and I'm from the Chicago area. I have big dreams to make the world a more hospitable, loving, and peaceful place, and my vision for that starts with teenagers. See, I've spent over two years, almost three years, exploring the world of teenagers in peacemaking. My project, Teens for Peace in the Middle East, interviews Israelis and Palestinian teenagers to understand their experiences and perspectives on the conflict between their two peoples. Through it, I found some fascinating trends and patterns. Above all, I discovered that teenagers fit a unique age group in which stereotypes are present, but not yet hardened and unchangeable. So I've made it my mission to share the stories of teenagers in conflicts worldwide to help alter untrue stereotypes about the other before they become set in stone. By building a platform of connected teenagers, I hope to contribute towards a more peaceful world where peace starts in youth. This podcast miniseries is discussing in depth each of the questions I've asked over 32 Israeli and Palestinian teenagers to examine how different experiences have impacted their views on the conflict between their peoples. The hope is that by the end of this miniseries, both you and I will have a better idea of how we can promote young people in peacebuilding and understand why young people play such a crucial part, not just in conflict, but in bringing about change in multiple contexts. This is the Teens for Peace podcast. Today, for our seventh episode, let's discuss the future. It's a scary concept filled with uncertainties. As teenagers, my interviewees have their lives ahead of them, and while examining every aspect of their current interactions with the conflict surrounding them is crucial, so too is discussing their futures. Future and the more concrete goals within such a general concept guide us as young people. These goals and aspirations determine how we behave, think, and act. I believe it's essential to listen to the preoccupations of young people caught in the crosshairs of conflict because those perspectives can guide us towards solutions if genuinely considered and, as we'll soon see, that includes both clear answers and murky ones. So in each conversation I had, I asked, how do you see this conflict impacting your future? Early on in this project, I found Dona. Dona, 16 at the time, was one of the first Palestinians I'd ever interacted with. And she inspired me to add this question about one's perception of the future. I like I'm thinking about what can I learn in the future? When what place can I work? What's my career gonna be? And the direct answer that all the time I get is I don't think you will be able to work in this place because they only hire Jews because they have to, to trust them. And I think that's the most thing that frustrates me ever about racism because you can't actually develop yourself. Like you're gonna just stay in the play in the safe zone. Like you're gonna play it safe. And I don't think it's actually safe because if you don't succeed in your life, I don't think that you will get money and money in in this place in this country like with safety. If you don't have money, then I don't think you are safe here. We're taught to always tell our children they have the ability and the strength to become whoever they want to become, especially in finding a job they enjoy. Dona's words here were part of the reason I remained motivated to continue Teens for Peace. She's able to verbalize so well 
not only the pain she feels now growing up in conflict, but the way she is constantly weighed down by what's awaiting her in her future. Her options, she feels, are limited solely because of her ethnicity and identity, and she faces a labyrinth of decisions to even have a career in the country she loves. Dona is limited to more menial jobs because the state of perpetual conflict has led to distrust, another sign of institutions failing to educate against blanket stereotypes. Marcel, an 18-year-old Israeli-Palestinian I'm proud to still be in contact with, brought an entirely new issue to my attention, the lack of Palestinian psychologists. Marcel is concerned about his mental health and the mental health of those around him in the future, saying, In, in the South, in Ben Gurion University, and I'm studying psychology. Uh, one of my important, well, at least the, the um, one of my passion, uh, passions and visions for the future, at least, uh, it involves being able to recognize what's happening in the minority side of Israel, psychologically speaking. Right now in Israel, we have one of the major problems uh, that there's not enough psychologists in the Arabic community. And that's that's uh, affected by many, many, many different things, part of which is uh, funding. We are not getting enough fund, uh, funding from the country to kind of give more uh, resources for psychology and the and uh, the Arab Israeli community, and part of it comes from the stigmas that Arab Israelis have towards psychology, and that's because we kind of live in a collective society. It's a bit different from uh, from USA or Europe, where you have more um, individual identities and more collective sure. identities. So that's I'm I'm gonna be focusing a lot on my field of tra- trying to bring more awareness to mental health and mental uh, support in the Arab-Israeli community. And it's not one step. This is one of, what, right. what I want to make clear. It's, it's the first step always happens with every single step. Before my discussion with Marcel, I had no idea how widespread mental health issues were in the Palestinian community. of Palestinian children have gone through at least one traumatic incident, and the amount of psychologists is a fraction of what it should be. I'm most impacted by the way Marcel doesn't place blame for this problem on one person or group, but rather points out that the shortage has developed as a result of both Israeli and Palestinian actions and decisions. As a changemaker himself, Marcel intends to raise awareness about this issue, which is not only admirable, but is truly what Teens for Peace is all about. He's fighting for a healthier future. We just need to make sure there is a future to fight for. Amir, 14-year-old Israeli, tells me he's concerned at how little his friends care about the conflict. Concerned it will continue to perpetuate if we don't start to portray some urgency. He says, um, For me, it's going to impact. I really want to solve the problem. But for my friends and other people, they just... Don't really care. They serve like three years in the army and just go do the go to college, graduate, go family. Just really don't care. Doesn't really affect. Amir's mic was a little muffled, but his emotion was clear. Throughout the interview, Amir stressed his frustration that Israeli peers who can afford to live without paying attention to the conflict 
usually do so. He tells me they're oblivious to those who can't ignore what's going on, and that that oblivion is an increasing threat to the prospects of a peaceful resolution. They go to the army, come back, and they're done with caring about the conflict. In short, Amir is worried that not enough people are prepared to discuss the conflict, particularly in an unbiased and logical way, and in turn the situation will only worsen. Yaniv, 13-year-old Israeli, notes, So, um, I actually have a goal for my life, and it'll sound a bit weird, but I want to be a diplomat because of everyone kind of uh, brought me towards that and debate for peace and um the whole my goal in life is trying if if it wouldn't be solved yet trying to solve this conflict because i live in israel and i attend for it every day as i said almost every day um we all have this fear and some of the things that's one of my goals and i think it will infect my um future yes if it wouldn't be solved yet yaniv is incredibly well spoken for a 13 year old he understands the nuances of conflict and is able to discern between different causes of its perpetuating nature Throughout our conversation, Yaniv discussed specific ways we can make a stronger effort to clarify to these kids that there is a gray area and that one group being all good and one being all bad simply isn't realistic or true. He's already decided to dedicate his life to contributing towards a long-term solution in these ways. And in a way, what he says contrasts from the others we've heard so far. It is a message of hope instead of fear. Yaniv is so deeply impassioned by the conflict, so drawn to the areas for opportunity for change, that his future is defined by his dedication. Peacebuilders like Yaniv are the people who give me hope for a new chapter in the Israeli-Palestinian story. Yet for me, his words raised new questions. Should we expect all kids to be devoted to peace as Yaniv is, to be wanting to become a diplomat? Is that fair if the idea is to give teens as many occupational and educational opportunities as we can rather than constrain their goals and interests? Is there a specific number of Yanivs we need? And if so, how many? 17-year-old Alisa tells me, well, Since I have a very clear view of what I want to do, I want to be prime minister someday, I think of everything as what will get me there. So at some place, I think I can't <coughs> claim to represent my people as in Israelis or something, if I haven't done something like idea, <coughs> which in many ways defines what the people are, it defines them. Yeah. And that, I think, pulls me in that direction a bit. Elisa is what she calls a, quote, Russian-Ukrainian-Israeli-Palestinian. She feels her identity and her very specific goal to become prime minister in this conflict means she has to be conscious at all times of every decision she makes. Taking the wrong job or living in the wrong place will be a nail in the coffin of her dreams. And the conflict only makes this labyrinth she must navigate more elaborate. Going into the IDF will anger some, and denying it will anger others, she said. 
Elise is also worried about her identity getting in the way because of heightened tensions of long-term conflict. Labeling herself as Palestinian is a red flag for Israeli voters and vice versa. She is motivated by the hatred she sees and experiences to dedicate her life to peace like Yaniv. And yet she is burdened by who she is in achieving this goal. In my eyes, Elisa's story embodies the impossible, contradictory situations we place teens in with our hatred. 15-year-old Israeli Aliyah has experienced significant racism from Palestinians calling her a killer with the intent of making her ashamed of who she is. They just showed me, like, they didn't know me. They called me killer um, and things like that. And when people asked me if I will go to the army, um, it's something that I have to do. And it's something when I said yes, they called me also gain a killer and that I my my country is killing uh, fighting kids and things like that and they don't was really nice to me and it was really really hard. Elia loves Israel. She loves being Israeli, but being Israeli means compulsory military service, something for which Elia feels she receives hatred for. Every day, Elia says, she must wake up expecting to be criticized for being Israeli and having to reinforce her pride in her country. She's worried about a future in which she constantly has to be aware of who she is. In this, Elia feels that she loses who she is. She is not a killer, and if what these people say is true, then she cannot be Israeli. But if she is not Israeli, who is she? That's the root of this problem. The development of stereotypes we've discussed in other episodes are at the epicenter of it all. When it seems that all Israelis are killers or all Palestinians are killers, and one expresses that to an Israeli or a Palestinian, that person often loses their way, questioning who they are and if they are, indeed, a killer by association, just because of their ethnic makeup. Aliyah's rightfully afraid of a future where she's defined by vicious labels that don't even apply to her. Michal, 17-year-old Israeli, says, um, I really want um, a right peace with them because I don't want to grow up my kids here if oh, two years... Um, it will be warm and raketot and it's not fun. It's really scary and I think all all warm that we have here about my father because he's older. So I don't want uh, they they live like that. I really want to hope that that there be a good future and we have peace with them and we live together and I really want to help for this, for this future. Michal's words are somewhat of a synthesis of some of the ideas we've heard thus far. She's both concerned with the status quo, yet 
hopeful for a more peaceful future, a future she wants to help build. At the age of 17, she's already afraid of raising her future kids and environment defined by such war and hatred. She's torn between love for her country and anxiety for her safety and the safety of her loved ones. This idea struck me profoundly, particularly because I could partially identify with her fears. I have never and can never experience an entire childhood and adolescence of worry, of conflict. But my sense of safety in my own community was shaken when, on July 4th, a gunman mercilessly killed seven people at a parade, just five to ten minutes from my house. While I'm extremely fortunate to be generally very safe in my hometown, for just a moment I experienced that fear of worrying for loved ones during an event I had no control over. I felt for Michal when I frantically texted any friends that might be there, or when I watched my younger brother fear for his life that we might be next. In this environment, who can blame Michal for not wanting to raise her kids in the chaos? Liran, 18, has come to terms with the status quo, not that he's okay with it, but that it's simply a reality we must deal with for now. His fear is the conflict's deterioration. With no end in sight and no clear political route to decreasing tensions, there is only room for the conflict to worsen. As long as everything stays the same, the conflict won't be a consideration. Right. Right? Like, it won't be that I'm moving away because the conflict, so because the conflict. Sure. It's I'll be moving away because there's a better job opportunity somewhere else, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But I think if things do change for better or for worse, especially if, it's, if they change for the worse, which hopefully won't happen, um, I know you, you, you just see things, you might know, I might see myself needing to move away if I want to pursue a certain career. I might want to, you know, I might want to distance my way, distance, distance myself from the conflict. So yeah. I want to be in the center of it. That's all it is. He's afraid he'll have to leave the country he loves so much to declare it beyond repair. Wanting to contribute to a solution, he's worried he might have to abandon it altogether. Liran is why we should be most concerned. The young people, the young voices that have the capacity and motivation to create change, are being driven away because we can't even keep it together for just a few years. Only if there are steps towards hope, and they don't have to be colossal steps, will we inspire those who will create actual change and, in turn, initiate a solution. In short, small steps are something we should revere. It can't be all or nothing because if we hold out for the all too long, we'll lose our changemakers who can lead us there. Mo, an incredibly well-spoken 18-year-old Arab-Israeli, says, Well, if things were still the same as now, I think I, my future won't be as good as I want it to be. Because, you know, the conflict actually affects all sides of people, the community here in Israel and also in Palestine. Like, it will affect us a lot. And I think if, like, there's this uh, percentage that there will be peace so little, like, it's 0.00003. That's how little it is, because it's not in teenagers' hands. Like, we can we can do it. We can go to programs. We can join organizations for beasts, like World for Beasts. We can 
go. We can inter interact with people, but it will never be easy to change the you know the leaders' minds because they have this thing in their heads that I have to do this. Well, at least like think about the people's opinions. Like yes, and I think that that's the point of programs to put this image in uh, in the teenagers' minds and also all like in all ages to show them the real image to hear from both sides to let them interact with each other that's when i when will peace will come when all people agree on one thing mo's words are profound but they also echo what liran and donut told us mo is in that liminal space in that impossible situation many of the voices we've heard today are he wants to help, but knowing he's too young to be taken seriously, he feels he can't in any meaningful way. Leaders, Mo says, are far too set in their ways, unwilling to listen, cooperate, or compromise. And this is hurting everyone. Mo told me throughout our time together that he's experienced impacts of the conflict on friends and family from all nationalities and backgrounds, affected by unfair policies, discrimination, education, and internalized racism all going both ways. His fear stems from the fact that leaders know, but ignore, these fundamental truths and are thus adamant about maintaining a worsening status quo. He too is focused on the waning potential for peace, watching that potential slip through his fingers without being able to stop the bleeding. Fundamentally, teenagers are people finding their way in the world. They are nomads in the desert, seeking refuge in hopes and dreams and a future. I know because I am one too, trying to find my calling and meaning. There is a sandstorm in that desert for many of the teens we've heard from today. The future becomes increasingly murky when there's a continuous conflict with no end in sight. Asking teens about the future they see is a crucial question to understand how they perceive the world around them, but more importantly, how they plan to create a life for themselves around the conflict. Dona, Alea, and Elisa articulated the lurking yet paralyzing fear of future constraints, always thinking about the doors that are closed to them because of who they are and where they come from. Yaniv, Mo, and Laran told us about wanting to create solutions and make a difference, and yet having to watch chances for peace decrease exponentially with each passing year, untrusted by leaders as young people to make a difference. Marcel and Michal are worried about the futures of those around them, those they love, whether it be anxiety about the increasing and increasingly unnoticed Palestinian mental health epidemic, or about exposing one's own kid to hate and violence, something a teen should never have to think about. If we truly want to hear these voices, it's time to include young people in the political conversation. The Yanivs, Mo's, and Liran's of the world have important things to say, but the status quo shuts them out for being a few years too young. We call on governmental bodies in the Middle East and throughout the world to increase youth programming and to hold forums, as well as lowering the voting age. The only way we can keep these young people involved and invested in a solution is to keep them in the region and to let them speak their minds. Fortunately, some of these concerns can be addressed fairly simply. More funding for Palestinian psychology training programs and psychology programs at universities in Israel and Palestine 
would at least accomplish a first step towards Marcel's concern. But some are harder. How can we convince Aaliyah she won't be called a killer? How can we convince Dona she can be whatever she dreams? I'm not too sure myself, but I'm pretty convinced we can find out if we start asking youth. That will about wrap it up for our seventh episode, but if you enjoyed, stay tuned for more, and check out our website at teenspeace.org, where you can view more interviews and some of our other work. On October 30th, we'll be hosting an interview alumni panel where you can hear from and interact with our alumni as they've grown up. If you register for free on our website, you can send us questions to pass along to our participants. Teens for Peace looks forward to some new projects in the near future, collaborating on professional research among teen attitudes, and the creation of new multi-sided curriculum for middle school-aged students. Again, I'm Max Hyman for the Teens for Peace podcast. Thanks for listening.